Do we have any questions from this morning before we dive into our new handout? Yeah. Zach's question is how does this um, devastating judgment connect with the first two chapters of the book? Great question. Open to Zechariah 9. Try to answer this somewhat quickly. We could do a whole thing on just the layout of Zechariah. But, um, actually, go to chapter 1. Go to chapter 1. And if you remember, I'll, I'll just walk you through, I think, the, the clear divisions in the book. Book of Zechariah, broken into three sections. The first is, um, after a brief introduction, is the eight night visions. And so we get a timestamp in one one, where the first opening call to repentance, return to me, I'll return to you. But then starting in one seven, we get another timestamp on the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, saying, and then we get visions. And the key phrase in these visions is, I lifted up my eyes and I saw. So you look at one um, eighteen. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, 2-1, I lifted my eyes and I saw, and behold. And then we get vision after vision after vision. And we're told they happened to the same night. At one point, he has to even be woken up. Verse chapter 5, I lifted my eyes and I saw, and behold. 5-5, five, five, I lifted my eyes to see what was going out, and behold. Chapter 6, I lifted my eyes and I saw, and we see a formula introducing those. So we, Okay, so here's eight night visions, formulaically introduced the same way. Boom. Then chapter 7 starts with a new timestamp. So now we get, it, two years later, we jump ahead. So that's the first section of the book of these eight visions in one night. And they've got a common formula introducing them. Chapter 7 begins the second section, one question, four answers. Gets a new timestamp. In the fourth year of the King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Chisle. And then what introduces these fourfold responses, their question comes in verses 2 and 3. Verse 4, the word of the Lord of hosts came to me. And it quotes. Verse 8, the second response, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying. 8.1, the word of the Lord of hosts came saying. 8.18, the word of the Lord of hosts came to me saying. Do you see the common formula introducing these four responses? So that's our next section is one question they ask, God's fourfold response, chapter 7 and 8. Then we get our next formulaic introduction in 9.1. The burden of the word of the Lord. And we see that a second time in chapter 12, verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord. So the last section of the book, no time stamp, as best as we can estimate. This is the very end of Zechariah's ministry and life. Things have changed dramatically. And we have these two big burdens of the word of the Lord. And each of them is a good three chapters long. So 9, 10, 11, the burden. And then... Um, 12, 13, and 14 is the other burden, each three chapters long. So that's our divisions. Within those prophecies, by the very nature of the prophetic element and by the very nature of the fact that now we're really looking towards far, far future, they sort of weave in and out of Israel's future. And like I said, if you look at chapter um, 9, verse 9, there is a 2,000-plus-year gap between Zechariah 9.9 and 9.10, which Zechariah is completely unaware of. It doesn't mean he's an error. He just clearly has no idea of the time factor. So it's not that the Scripture says anything that's untrue. It doesn't say anything that's true. The Messiah will come 
mounted on a donkey, righteous, having salvation, absolutely he will. Humble in the colt of a donkey, absolutely he will. And the Messiah will cut off the chariot from a frame and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow and shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. Absolutely he will. 2,000 years after he does the first thing. You know what I'm saying? Zechariah is, is unaware of what we see clearly now, which is Messiah comes, he's rejected. And then we get what we heard about this morning, this time of the Gentiles. Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot until the end of the time of the Gentiles. And so Zechariah just sees, hey, the Messiah is going to come, and the Messiah is going to make peace, and he's going to speak peace, and he's going to bring salvation. Absolutely he is. And Messiah is going to come in chapter 11, and he's going to be rejected, and he's going to judge Israel. Absolutely he is. And Zechariah does not, in the book, have a clear understanding of how all those pieces fit together. He just knows it's true. These, the Messiah will do these things. I think it's meant to be, to the reader, I think the juxtaposition is meant to be jarring. I don't think it's by accident that chapter 9 has that, what I called, cold open. No explanation. You see, he could, have, he could have done 11 differently. He could have given the reasons for the judgment first and then announced the judgment. Rather, after announcing Israel's salvation, Israel's salvation, Israel's salvation, judgment first, then I'll start explaining to you why. So I haven't fully wrapped my head around why he might do that. It just seems to me clearly that's the intent. It's meant to be jarring. It's meant to be sudden. It's meant to be unexpected. The reader's supposed to be caught off guard. It's like hitting play in the movie, and all of a sudden you're in the middle of like an epic you know, naval battle. You know, the bombs are, whoa! You've had that experience watching TV or watching a movie. You hit it in, and you're waiting for the MGM line and some music and you know, the assistant vice producer and all those people who come up before the director, and instead, boom, you're in the thick of it. That's, I think, what's going on here. Just, just this poetic language of, of judgment. And then we start to get some of the reasons for why it is. And then we get some of the reasons for why it is. And when we get back to this next time, we're going to see the 30 pieces of silver, the betrayal. I mean, by the end of this, it'll make sense. Wow. He was betrayed. He was, I mean, the ultimate insult, I'm sort of stealing from next time, but look at verse 12. Because it says, we just saw today how they detested him. He's going to tell you, Specifically, how much did they detest him? A lot. Then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages. But if not, keep them. And they weighed out my wages, 30 pieces of silver, which is what Joseph's brothers got paid. It was the price if you killed someone's servant or slave, they were gored by an ox in Exodus, you had to pay them 30 pieces of silver. The contempt that these people have for him is this. Hey, I've been serving you, I've been ministering to you, I've been shepherding you, I've been protecting you from your enemies. Um, hey, it's voluntary, it's not under compulsion, but like, what, what, what do I get as a result? And I, and I think he's not looking for money, I think he's looking for, you know, like, thanks, or faith, or fidelity, or anything. And what they basically say to him is this, we, we think you're about as valuable and as useful to us as any slave we could go and buy today. You're, you're as useful and as replaceable, and we get as much benefit from you as we could from any common slave. That, that's the extent to which he's rejected. And I think that sort of culminating piece you get now, wow, that's the contempt they had for the Good Shepherd. I think it makes sense now, all this judgment that comes. But it, you don't, it's not to get to the very end of the passage that it starts to all click, oh, wow, they did what? You're, it starts with the judgment and us going, where did that come from? And then we get a little bit of the explanation and some more judgment. And really, it's not till it unfolds all the way at the bottom. So it seems clearly the intent of the author to lay it out that way. 
I don't know if I've got a fuller explanation for why he thought that was the best way to do it. Clearly, it is the best way to do it because God doesn't do anything partially well. He does everything well. But I think that's something worth chewing on. In what way is it supposed to, is the reader supposed to be jarred out of his, yay, yay, whoa, <laughs> which is absolutely, if you read it, how it, how it reads. Oh, a 10 ends with, and let's just look, just read 10, 8 through 11, 1. I will whistle for them and gather them in, for I have redeemed them, and they shall be as many as they were before, though I scattered them among the nations. Yet in far countries they shall remember me with their children, and they shall live and return, and I will bring them home from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria, and I will bring them into the land of Gilead to Lebanon till there is no room for them. And he shall pass through the sea of troubles and strike down the waves of the sea, and all the depths of the Nile shall be dried up. The pride of Assyria shall be laid low, and the scepter of Egypt shall depart, and I will make them strong in the Lord, and they shall walk in his name, declares the Lord. Open the doors, O Lebanon. I mean, it's just, whoa. Yeah, I, I have to think that's intentional, that that is meant to be shocking. So maybe I don't know if I fully answered your question. I just recognize, yep, it, it is meant to be jarring and disjunctive. Wendell. Yes. I said at least, at least. I mean, it's not quite been 2,000 yet. In, in, in 2033, it would be two, a 2,000-ish year gap, right? No, I'm not, I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet, and I work for a nonprofit. Please, please. No, sir. No, I'm not a, I'm not, I'm not a prophet. Yes. Oh, oh, yes, yes. All of the Jewish interpretations of this as well are messianic. All, all the best. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. God is sovereign. I mean, why would they choose? There's, there's some other things. I mean, God's sovereignty and his, his picking it has up. Yeah, it seems foolish. Why would you choose to do that? Well, you choose to do it because Scripture can't be broken. And so one way or another... God's word's going to come true, but fair enough. Why would they do that? Why would they choose to, they have to know Isaiah 53. Why would they pierce him? Why not just have his head cut off? Why, why pierce? Why a piercing death? You got to know those passages of they pierce, or even Zechariah, they'll look on him whom they pierced. They got to know that. Crucify, crucify, crucify. Why not behead, 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 or, or you know, strike down with a sword or something? Um, they, yeah, I, I don't, Here's my answer. It's Acts 3. Go to, go to Acts 3. My answer to that question is, where is it? 4. Hold on. It's, it's highlighted in here, so I'll find it. Um, um, hold on. Acts Acts 4.27. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. 
somehow God's sovereignty rules it so they've sold him for 30 pieces of silver. It doesn't seem like a bright idea if you're not wanting to give him credibility. I, 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 I don't know how God works his sovereignty. I just know he does. But that's a good observation. It does seem like a poor plan. It, fair enough. Fair enough. Any other questions? Okay, then. We got a new handout. Um, okay. We are closing up. We're going to start on this side of the handout. This side was six bullet points, six numbers. Um, I spent the last two or three weeks talking about my understanding, teaching my understanding of the doctrine of election and predestination as it relates to salvation. And this week, I want to deal with the objections. I've put down some of the most common ones. Yeah, if you need a, if you need a handout, um, can I get a volunteer to do the handouts? Jeremy, thank you. He's one of the needers. And before I forget, Carrie, thank you. Oh, dang. Okay, intercepted. That's a basketball term, right? No, I'm just joking. It's football. I knew it was soccer. Okay. Um, so, okay. Golf. There you go. Okay, yeah. Okay. Um, I've got down some of the others. I talked to Zeb because he's, he hears it sometimes from people, and there's others. I'll just go through some of the more common objections, and then if you've got your own, we'll throw them out. Um, so, the first one, my absolute favorite objection, I said dripping with irony and sarcasm, is the... If God chooses, then that just means we're all a bunch of robots. Um, anyone ever heard that, or anyone ever thought that, or anyone ever encountered this? Let me, let me, let me assure you, there is nobody who is pro-robot. No one is advocating that we are robots. There's no theological position that I'm aware of that advocates, well, what do you believe? I believe that we're all robots. No one says that. This is a, you guys familiar with the term a straw man argument? Anyone, anyone familiar with the term a straw man? It's, no, no, it's not from Wizard of Oz. Straw man argument is a, is, a, is, a, is a fallacious argument where you pretend to attack a straw man. He can't fight back. You, you, in, basically, it's, it's, it would be, let's make a stupid example. It would be kind of like saying that I think that, um, I think that, um, oh dear, how'd you do this? It'd be kind of like saying, you know, people that, if someone said, you know, people that believe in election predestination all have bad breath. Well, they, well, actually, that'd be ad hominem, too. It'd be kind of like saying, well, they just believe we're all... You make the, your opponent's argument intentionally weaker than it really is. So you don't represent it in all of its strength. And then, no big surprise, you can defeat this weak position. So you say, well, Calvinists just believe, or people who believe in predestination just believe. They're all a bunch of robots. And, yeah, clearly that's not true, so they're wrong. Ah, uh, the, that's not... That's, nope, nope, that's not what I believe. Which is why I said a week or two ago... Anytime I discuss this now going forward, I really start with, can we just take a minute and see if we understand what the other person's saying? Like, let me, I think I can, let me try to lay out what you're saying. You tell me if I'm right. And then I'd like to hear you lay out what you think I'm arguing um, to see if you actually understand what I'm saying. Because nine out of 10 times, well, you think we're all robots, right? Nope, nope, nope. You don't even understand what I'm saying yet. Okay, we should probably talk some more just at what, what are you saying level. The, the basic answer to this question of fatalism is this. The, the position that I've advocated, the position on election and predestination, argues that God is able to sovereignly work 
while not negating human volition and choice. Okay? Now you can say, I don't believe that's true, but understand my position is that God's sovereignty does not nullify or cancel out man's responsibility and man's um, un... No one's twisting your arm behind your back. No one is forcing you to do what you don't want to do. You get to do what you want to do. You never do anything you don't choose to do. Now you can say, that doesn't make sense, or I don't think that's true. What you can't say is, you think we're robots, because buried into what I'm saying I think is true is the fact that God's absolute sovereignty over all things, including salvation, does not nullify us making morally significant choices, us doing things without constraint. So the, the charge that, that this view leads to believing in robots simply is not true. And any questions about that? I mean, it gets back to your question. Why do they do it? I don't know. I know that Paul, and well, not Paul, Peter and the early church in Acts 3 can say, I mean, that verse we just read, he blames them. Truly, Herod and Pilate and the Gentiles and the Jews conspired together. So they're, he's blaming them to do exactly what your hand and predetermined plan and predestined would take place. He is able in one breath to blame them and credit God with his sovereignty. And that's exactly what I'm saying the Bible teaches. In one breath, we should be able to say, it's your fault for not believing, and God chooses who'll be saved. And if we see a tension there, the Bible's fine with that tension. And, and I don't claim to know how those things get resolved. I know that Joseph can look at his brothers who sold him into slavery in Genesis 50 and say, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. I can simultaneously condemn you for selling me into slavery and praise God for his sovereign plan in all things. Or Paul in Philippians 2 can say, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work within us, both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. So Paul does not say, because God is at work within you. Now think about this. To cause you to will and to do, sit back because you're a robot. He says, get to work because God is at work in you. So the Bible sees what philosophers call compatibilism, or theologians call concurrence, this notion that there can be dual causality that don't cancel each other out. We're tempted to think either I did it or God did it. And I'm saying the Bible says, no, it can be both. Yes. Yeah. Or turned it. In, well, in fact, the Hebrew is even more emphatic because the, the, the um, it that, that Joseph uses is a, uh, is a feminine. You guys are familiar with languages like Spanish, the masculine, feminine words? Well, there's a thing called agreement. And so a pronoun has to agree with its antecedent. The word it, you meant it, God meant it for um, good. The it is feminine. The only possible feminine antecedent is ra'ah, evil. Literally, you meant it for evil and God meant the evil for good. God meant the evil for good or that evil for good. God had an intention in that evil. He didn't turn it. He planned it for good. God planned the evil of the crucifixion of his son for good. Amen? It wasn't an accident, and it wasn't something like, oh, I know what I can do. I'll do this when they do that. He planned it. He planned that evil. He planned the evil of the crucifixion. And the people who crucified his son are still worthy of blame. They weren't robots. Um, okay, first objection. Questions there. This, so none of this, you can, you, yes, Kathy. Forgiven. God and his sovereignty chooses to give us free will. I, I, it all, it all comes down to the definition of terms. 
Um, and so, like I said, Luther could write the bondage of the will, and Jonathan Edwards could write the freedom of the will, and they're both arguing the same position. So depending on what you mean by those terms, I probably could say yes or no. I don't tend to like the term free will, because I think I know what most people mean by it. If you mean free will, non-constraint, do as you please. If that's what you mean, I say amen, we all have that. You get to do what you want. You are free to choose. You are free to do whatever you please. No one outside of yourself will, will reach in and twist your will behind your back and force you. I don't want to do it, but he's making me do it. That never happens. If you mean free will by that, which is what Edwards means, amen. I believe God gives us free will, if that is your definition of free will. Um, what Luther is saying in the bondage of the will is that freedom that we have, because we come into this world slaves to sin, we willingly and gladly and therefore must serve sin with our will. And so Luther is saying we come into this world in bondage, a slave to sin. All we want to do is sin. All we want to do is obey those desires. All we want to do is, is we love the darkness. And so there's one real sense in which you can speak of the will enslaved. And there's a very real sense that you can speak, hey, we just do what we want. We just let them do what we want. You know, cockroaches are going to do what cockroaches do. They're going to run from the light because they want to. But there's another sense in which you say it's their nature. They can't help it. They must run from the light. And you can speak of us in both of those ways. We will act out our nature. We must sin because we're sinners. But no one's making us sin. No one's twisting our arm to make us sin. So, so, so that's, that's, um, that's my issue with the issue of saying God chooses to give us free will. What most people mean by free will, though, is the ability at least in this discussion, the ability to both do good and evil. Or to use, quote the Latin, the passe peccare, the passe impeccare, because that becomes really clear. Um, no, but as people debated this out, the question is, does man have within him the capacity, without grace, to do both good and evil? And I would refer you back to the message in December on original sin and the depravity of man. We're, we're evil through and through. So, no, Jeremiah says, neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. Can the leopard change its spots? Ethiopian skin, no. So neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. That there's no, there's no. Um, use the example of taking a T-shirt and dunking it in dyed water. You could dye it darker shades of blue. There's no white left. There's no white shirt left. There's no part of me that says God looks attractive. God looks beautiful apart from God's grace. So there's no part of me that would want him. So it's precisely because I'm free that I will never choose him. It's precisely because no one's forcing me that I will never run to the light because I hate the light because my deeds are evil and I flee the light lest my deeds be exposed. That's a longish answer. Did that answer your question? Did I just sort of pontificate for five minutes? Or yes? I did both. Okay, there we go. Um, any other questions on that first point about robots and, and all that jazz? Yes? Yeah, no, no, at, at the, no, 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 Wanda, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, no, at the end of the day, you ask me, how can I both work hard at something and recognize it's God causing me to do into work? I don't know. I mean, don't, don't mistake for all of my talk and all of my rhetoric that I think I've got this figured out. I don't. There is a mystery here. Now, everyone recognizes there's a mystery somewhere in all of this, okay? Um, the question is where you place it, where you see the Bible placing it. To put it as simply as I can, the Bible repeatedly does both of the following two things. It repeatedly, in many places, insists that God is in control of all things, including horrific acts of evil like the crucifixion. 
and insist that without any shying away, without any apology. Satan has to ask permission before he can attack Job. Just no, no flinching. No, no, God only does nice things. God is sovereign. God suggests Job. It's God's idea. Hey, have you seen Job? It's not even Satan. Satan wasn't thinking about Job until God said, hey, check out Job. I mean, and the Bible insists over and over and over and over and over that we are responsible for what we do, that we make real decisions, that God pleads with us and implores us. And when we witness, it's as though God were pleading through us. Now, how you fit those two truths together, I don't fully know. I got some ideas that can get a little closer. At the end of the day, I take it by faith they're both true. God is absolutely sovereign over everything, including the crucifixion, including, including horrific acts of evil, including the Holocaust. He's sovereign. He didn't get off his throne to go you know, use the loo while the Holocaust took place. He was ruling the universe then. And equally true, when you read through Ezekiel, chapter after chapter of you don't really get how bad your sin is, man is responsible. Man really is responsible. No one's twisting his arm. There is no excuse. Why would you die? Turn to me. Turn to me. Turn to me all the ends of the earth. Why would you die? Go warn the evil man. They're all, that's true too. And it's, if you can just grasp they're both true, that, yeah, absolutely. You can just say, throw your hands up and say, I don't know how they're both true. The Bible treats them both as true. So there it is. Does that, does that make sense? Adam, are you getting ready to set up my thing? Okay. I got a video clip. Woo! Jason, would you dim the lights? Dr. Vody Bauckham. I don't know if you ever heard Vody Bauckham. He's an interesting dude. He's a pastor from Texas. He's, I like him. I like him a bit. He uh, was at Piper's post-modernity and the, uh, the, sovereign, the, the supremacy of Christ in a postmodern world. Here's a five-minute clip of him dealing with evil and God and the problem of evil and sin. So here we go. For those listening in, I apologize. After taking a semester in philosophy, there ought to be a rule. You should not be able to talk about philosophy unless you've had more than a semester of philosophy. <laughs> if you haven't had any, that's fine. Talk away. But if you've had a semester, you are messed up. <laughs> be better off just not taking it at all. And they'll come up and they'll say things to me and they fought these things out. And I'm on the campus to talk about these issues and dealing with apologetics and they want to catch me alone and ask me these questions and they look at me and they say, I just wanted to ask you that um, if you believe in a God that is omnipotent and omnibenevolent, then how do you reconcile the issue of theodicy? To which I respond, took a semester of philosophy, right? Oh yes, how did you know? Because if you hadn't, you'd have just said, listen, God's so powerful and so good, how come bad stuff happens? <laughs> but I'm not going to answer the question until you ask it correctly. <laughs> I worked on that all week. What do you mean ask it correctly? You're not asking the question properly. What do you mean ask the question properly? It's my question. You can't tell me how to ask my question. I will answer your question when you ask it properly. How do I ask it properly? Here's how you ask that question properly. 
you look me in my eyes and you ask me this. How on earth can a holy and righteous God know what I did and thought and said on yesterday and not kill me in my sleep last night? You ask it that way and we can talk. But until you ask the question that way, you don't understand the issue. Until you ask the question that way, you believe the problem is out there. Until you ask the question that way, you believe that there are somehow some individuals who in and of themselves deserve something other than the wrath of Almighty God. Until you ask me the question that way, until you flip the script and ask the question this way and say, why is it that we are here today? Why has he not consumed and devoured each and every one of us? Why, why, oh God, does your judgment and your wrath tarry? When you ask it that way, you understand the issue. When you ask it the other way, you believe in the supremacy of man. How dare God not employ his power on behalf of almighty man. You flip the question around, you believe in the supremacy of Christ. How dare I steal his heir? Because the last breath I took, I borrowed it from him. And I'm never going to give it back. When you borrow something and never give it back, you're stealing. I mean, you need to take a moment and get right right now. <laughs> the problem is me. The problem is the fact that I do not acknowledge the supremacy of Christ in truth. The problem is, I start with me as the measure of all things. The problem is, I judge God based upon how well he carries out my agenda for the world. And I believe in the supremacy of me in truth. And as a result, I want a God who is omnipotent but not sovereign. If I have a God who is omnipotent but not sovereign, I can wield his power. But if my God is both omnipotent and sovereign, I am at his mercy. Uh, we, we, here we go. We're on. We're on? We're on. Yes. Dr. Vody Bauckham, you can listen to the whole message. It's well worth it. It was funny. When we, we played that entire sermon, it's a 15-minute sermon to the youth. Who was it? Was it, um, so they thought that was John Piper. He's like, I didn't know John Piper was black. <laughs> um, what? No, it wasn't Alyssa. It was, um, he went to Simpson. Um, he could, would come with Greg originally. And, and No, no. Who was, you knew his dad. He, he would come... He'd ride here with you guys, Wolf Guards? Well, come on. He's not here, it's been years. Oh, Greg would know. Greg tells the story all the time. What? 
No, not Mustache Mike. Um, he was black. I'm trying to remember. Um, Julian. It was Julian who said that. Yeah, Julian said, I didn't know Piper was black. <laughs> okay. Um, I saw a hand. We good? What? Yep. No. Okay. 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 So that's, that's number one. Number two, if that's true, it's not fair. This is probably the most common result, common, common objection um, to the sovereignty of God and election is it's not fair. And I think that this truly mistakes the difference between fairness and justice. Um, God never claims to be fair. And he is absolutely unfair in that he gives certain gifts to people and other gifts to other people. The simple fact that some of us are born smarter, some of us are born um, taller, some of us are born into homes with, with more money or Christian homes. There, there is not fairness, is there? Whether you're born in a poor third world country or born into a first world country, whether you're born into a Christian home or a pagan home, there's not equity for all. People get different starting points. That is definitionally unfair. Fairness means equality, equity, right? If I come into here and I give candy bars to everyone but Zeb, that's not fair. My point is there's nothing unjust about it. There's nothing wrong about that. There's nothing, I have not wronged Zeb if I don't give him a candy bar. I think I've probably made Mary happy. Um, <laughs> hold on, hold on. Um, I just got, I'm trying to find the parable of the, the, the guys who work. Can you look that one up for me, Zeb? You know the one I mean, right? Yeah, yeah. Talents, yeah. No, no, the ones who work. Five hours, three hours, two hours, one hours, that one. Okay, hold on, Zeb's looking it up. So the, the point here is this. The point to get is this. What, what Vody Bauckham just addressed is if we think God owes us grace, if we think God is obligated to do nice things for us, then more than unfair, it's unjust. God not giving everyone an equal opportunity, God giving special grace to some. If you start the other way, saying, no, what, what is fair is each and every one of us going straight to hell, then you, you, you can say, but he chooses to lavish grace on some. Yes, did you find it? Luke, Matthew 20? Turn to Matthew 20. I had an unbelieving friend of mine, good friend of mine, absolutely hated this parable. Thought it was just, just really had a problem. I mean, in one sense, it was good because they were honest. Like, but this is the part, they, like, I like, I like your Jesus, but I really think he's wrong in this story. Matthew 20. Um, Jesus making the point. And remember, when God first appears to Moses, I mercy whom I mercy. Here, Jesus tells the story of the laborers in the vineyard. The kingdom of heaven, verse 1, is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into the vineyard. So he said, what, what, what do you want to get paid to work for me a full day? Will a denarius do? They say, yes, we'll work for you for a full day for a denarius. He went into the vineyard. Going about, about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. Whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again, the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, go into the vineyard too. Now, just to give you an idea, the, um, he went out, what's the last one? He went out, what hour? Um, 11th hour. So this is 11 hours after sunrise. 
which means we got about another hour or two before evening. These people are working an hour or two. Um, he said to them, no one has hired us. He said to them, you too go into my vineyard. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to the foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. So picture this, all the workers are gathered. And some of these guys have been busting their tail for 12 hours that day. And they line up and they know some of these guys just showed up for the last half hour, the last hour of work. And they watch to see what they get paid. And lo and behold, to everyone's amazement, he pays those who worked an hour denarius. Now, I'm beginning with the first to last. When he hired, the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. And when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. Oh, dude, did you see he gave them a denarius? I wonder who he's going to give us. And he gives them a denarius. Now, get this. And on receiving... And receiving it, they grumbled at the master, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me, or do you begrudge me my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. you got to get that. God says when he meets Moses on the mount, and we'll we'll end here because we've got two minutes, hey, I'm God, and if I want, I'm I'm merciful to whom I'm merciful. I mercy whom I mercy. But we never get to force God's hand on that. God, right out of the gate, when Moses says, show me your glory, I'll show you my glory, and I'll be merciful to whom I'm merciful. And God could give each and every one of us what we deserve. What we deserve is hell now. If God chooses to be extra merciful to some, it does not give any of us the right to complain unless we think we're entitled to it. But then it stops being mercy and grace. So you've got to stare that straight in the face. You've got to stare straight in the face. God would be perfectly righteous, perfectly just if every single one of us went to hell and went to hell now. You've got to start like... Dr. Bauckham said, not with these good people and God owes us stuff and he ought to treat us a certain way. Rather, there's this great God and we all rebel against him and we deserve wrath and it's amazing that he doesn't give us wrath. God gives everyone grace and he gives some more grace than others. And and that's just the way it is. Because he mercies whom he mercies, he graces whom he graces. And so the argument that election is unfair misses the point. You, You think we deserve better? What is it if the master wants to overpay some of his workers? What business is that to the others? It's hard, but again, the Bible unflinchingly just says it. Any questions on this point? Qu- quite, quite honestly, that's its most immediate application. Quite honestly, that is, because he said the kingdom of heaven is like, and there'll be some who labored for Christ all their life, and they get the same heaven that people like the thief on the cross who converted in his last moments get. Absolutely. So in its most immediate application, you're dead right. Jesus is immediately saying, there are some people who are going to suffer long and hard, and they're going to be persecuted, and they're going to, the book of Hebrews, sawn into, and there are others who aren't. And if God wants to be gracious and do that, so be it. If he's going to have Paul get shipwrecked, beat, stoned, um, arrested, accused, and we get to live in a nice, wealthy country that's just starting to get 
problematic to be a Christian. Does not the master of the vineyard have the right to do that? And you can picture Paul grumbling like, man, look at these guys. They have like running water and toilets and I'm getting shipwrecked and beaten and, you know, hey, you know, I'm God and I'm mercy whom I mercy. Thank you very much. On that note, we'll, we'll break. Um, I will see you in two weeks.